Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who does not change that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that we, as we look in your word and as we look in the way that you have worked in the past and we see your goodness and we see your righteousness and we see your grace and your loving kindness, Lord, we, we see that, Lord, those are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your, your very character, your very nature does not change. And so we thank you that we come to you in that way. We thank you that we have ex- our, ourselves experienced that grace and that mercy and that love and, and, and in the way that you have displayed that to us in our salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, is the same that we experience now that we are in Christ. Father, we thank you that we can experience that now as we are not just in Christ, but because we are in Christ, we are part of his body, the church. Father, help us to, to, to think through well of what that means and how do we glorify you, Lord, by 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 being faithful members of your church. And so we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, give us hearts to, to cherish and obey, Lord, what your word would say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about the church. And it's actually, it's interesting, on vacation, I've been reading a lot of, uh, for class, of N.T. Wright. I have a lot of disagreements with N.T. Wright, but he was assigned reading. And he's, he's, he's very engaging. Um, and, 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 he, he, he has said that the, the, the modern church has a lack of teaching on ecclesiology, on the doctrine of the church, which I think he's right. We, we, we've talked a lot about salvation, and we've talked a lot about the spirit, and we've talked a lot about um, uh, some of these other eschatology, the end times. There's, there's things that, that we love to study and love to talk about, but broadly, most theology books kind of skimp on the church. Most, you know, sermons and most other areas, it's just the church, the idea of what does God say the church is called to be, it gets overlooked. Now, now, now Tom Wright and I would, would, would differ very strongly on how we see the church. We have some very strong differences there, but his point of what he sees culturally is right. And so I think that I'm drawing out this point a little bit on, on, these, on these Sunday school classes, but I think maybe it's in reaction to the fact that there's a dearth of teaching on the church broadly. So maybe I'm going a little overboard of going a little more detail than we have on other areas because of a need, I think, to be really grounded and to really think biblically about the church, um, especially about what does it mean to be a part of the church, right? What does it mean to be a member of the church? And that's what we've been talking about, the different examples and images of membership in the New Testament, the, the importance, the necessity of, 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 of membership for New Testament Christianity, that we are, we are devoted to one another in this, this, this covenant relationship to where we are com- committed to stirring up one another to love and good deeds, that we are committed to ministering to one another to, 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 until we uh, achieve matureness in, in, in the faith, that there's this corporate work of sanctification. Uh, I love the author Paul Tripp, um, especially his book, Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands. And he writes, he writes the, 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 the statement, sanctification is a community project. The sanctification, my growth in holiness, my growth in Christ was never meant to be done in isolation. It's meant to be done in community as we sharpen one another. That, that when we look at these pictures of, of one another's in the New Testament, that it's, it's mixed in with the, these, command, the, these directions to holiness. 
And so, and then also that what it means to be a member is a role of witness that as we take in new members and as we remove those in unrepentant sin from members, from membership by discipline, that's a witness to the world and that act of membership. We see that these important aspects, but here's the important question we've been lacking. What do church members actually do? Right? Well, what is, in other words, what's the job description? Right? What is the job description biblically of a, a church member? And, and, and we're going to be addressing this for the next few weeks. And, and this is kind of, uh, well, thank you, Dave, for, for leading some discussion and showing the video last week. And I, I just, uh, it's kind of to prime the pump. Um, I think there's some things that are practical and pragmatic that I might disagree with, with Dever on that, um, that are more uh, pragmatic aspects. But I think that the foundational, foundational theology of what he's trying to get across, I, I, would, I, would agree, I think is really good. How that comes into play in different churches, I think there's some different ways to do it and not just one way as, as I think he's kind of given the, the, the quote-unquote Baptist way. And I'm not, not sure that's necessarily you know, the, the only way. But um, I think the underlying theology was what he, he, he was, was really good in that video. Um, so what about you guys? What, what stood out? What were your thoughts? What were your impressions? Uh, what things do you agreed with, disagreed with? Maybe you don't even remember the video at all, and that's okay. It's been a long week for some of us. Um, any, any thoughts that, that, that popped out from the video last week? Well, you know, I, since I studied it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, really, he really emphasized the church meetings, you know, the congregational meetings that we have, mm-hmm. how important that is for the congregation to know what the leadership's doing, how we're doing it, who's coming in, who's going out. And uh, that's a time for them to bring up questions or to say, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. You know, let's look into this. You know, Mm -hmm. actually, uh, he called the congregation as the brake, whereas we're the steering wheel, the leaders are the steering wheel, Mm -hmm. and the congregation is the brake. Yeah. So I think uh, he he really hit a lot on that, besides some other things that you just mentioned. But I, I think that's very important as a congregation that we understand that our our meetings that we have, like today, is very important. We're going to be electing uh, the mm-hmm. leadership of this church, and yeah. so those that are members should be there to to participate. Yeah, and that's where I would agree and disagree with Dever on. I would agree that 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 the elders. How do elders work with congregation, right? Elders are called to equip, uh, to, uh, equip the, uh, the body for the work of the ministry, right? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, what is the work of the ministry? What is the work that the saints are called to do? Part of that is being participating in knowing who's the church and who do we you know, take in as members and who do we see out as members. Now, do you have to actually vote for that to happen? I'm, I'm not sure. And he, he, he's big on that, but I'm not sure that's necessary. But I would say that whether or not you have an actual vote, that people are going to vote by how they live, right? So if, if you take in a member, but whether they vote or not, if they don't actually take the effort to go into, to link themselves in their life with that person, well, that, that, that's what's important. We want to equip that too. Here's a new person in our church. Here's a person that we are bonded to ourselves to in membership. We need to, 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 to connect with this person. And the well, same thing with loosing. I don't think he said anything about voting as far as... I think he did, but that's right, yeah. But he did say that, you know, he made the example that one guy we're going to let him, we're, we're voting him, we're, we're letting him go to another church. And, yeah. and someone says, well, wait a minute, that church doesn't yeah. believe in the Trinity. And so something, you know, a question yeah. like that. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, then he said, well, Matt, we, we need to look yep. into that. Yeah. So I think, and that's just good shepherding. And that's, that's a congregation that cares yeah. for one another, which is what we're, we're trying to do. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, Judy. Voting has always been my soapbox. Mm-hmm. So I can never find the word vote. I can find the word affirm, mm-hmm. which is a yes vote, mm-hmm. in deference to what the elders mm-hmm. have already decided. Is yeah. that a correct view? I think that voting... That's where I would say is pragmatic, right? And, and I, I don't think pragmatic's wrong. We do a lot that's pragmatic. Sunday school is pragmatic, right? What we, what yeah. Pragmatic. Practical. It's a practical application. We are called to teach, to teach, to pre- let me back off voting for a second. We're called to preach and teach the word. We're called to bring people up in the knowledge of the word. Sunday school is a great tool for that. Sunday school is not in the Bible. Right, um, and so, but we would say Sunday school is a good pragmatic tool to do that. Youth ministry, pragmatic tool. Awana, pragmatic tool. There are some things that are, are really um, very helpful, right? That we would say. Um, would that Deuteronomy be that teacher? Deuteronomy would be to parents, though, right? True. Yeah. So I would say that those are those. Not, again, not that they're wrong. But that they are, they are ways that we are applying what is, um, what is commanded. Here's what's commanded. Here's how you apply it, right? And there's some different ways to do that. So if a church says, we're not going to do Sunday school, we're going to do extra Bible studies instead, you could say, well, that's okay, right? If a church says, we're not going to do youth ministry, we're going to do a family integrated church, that's okay, right? And, and because there's some different ways of, of, of trying to get at that. Um, and I would say that when you talk about voting, I'd say it's very similar, right? It, it, the goal is not to have a vote. The goal is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And, and, and so if, if that in certain traditions, the way that people know that that's how you do it is if I vote for this, then I have to, you know, then I'm going to go do it versus whether the, the goal is not, is it voted for or not? The goal is how do we equip the saints to do the things? Why, why are you voting? You're voting because you want buy-in to be able to, to, to buy in for those things. Is it required by Scripture? No. But is it, is it a pragmatic tool to help get buy-in? Sure. So that's why I'm saying I'm not sure it's, it's, it's either way in the sense of it's right or wrong, because I don't think it is. I would say it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very neutral, and I think it can be used in very helpful ways. And I think it can be used in very unbiblical ways. If you're voting in a, as far as a, the church is meant to model American democracy, I think that that is unbiblical. I, I think that is unbiblical and dangerous to say, we're going to read the Bible through my American, I'm going to Americanize the Bible and I'm going to, I want to, I want to, I want to turn the, I want to basically base the Bible on the constitution instead of really what should be the other way around. Right. And so, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. One more comment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I want to talk about that later. Let me just say, I I would say, I think uh, Dever's, Dever's, um, Dever's illustration is perfect. There are times when the church is commanded to overrule. It's Galatians. In Galatians, the church is commanded to overrule. That is the wrong gospel. And the church is called to take a stand against that. So there are times of that emergency break because you have two things. You're having that there is engagement that's been given to the congregation and at the same time, the congregation is being called to obey the elders. Right. 
well, how does that work, right? And so there's, there's a way you have to put those two together, and that's where theology comes in of how we put systems together. But what I would say is that um, if, the, if the congregation is not willing to follow them on certain issues, the elders, whether they vote or not, are not doing a good job of teaching and training the congregation. Because guess what? Whether or not they vote, they're still going to live like they had voted in a certain way. You just kind of don't have to deal with the drama of it, but you actually don't get to see the fruit of proper sanctification. Of so, let's say, let's say we, um, let's say we, let's say there was a, let's say, let's say that there's a, a a vote on budget, right? And let's say there's a vote on budget, and the elders are saying we see there's an important ministry that we are pushing towards. So we're cutting over here, and we're going to push over here because we think that this is what the Lord has called us to do. Um, and we bring that to the Congress, which, which I don't think really is. That, Craig, Craig knows. Okay, yeah, we're not there. That, yeah, that's not coming this afternoon. Um, but, um, but let's say that was, right? Now, the, the congregation, one way or not, is going to choose what, you know, the, how they give and how they participate in that is going is to react whether you vote or not. And, and if, if they don't, the question is, have the elders taught enough why we're doing this and why the scriptures would call us to do this and how it, it, it's... I think it's, it's on the elders to teach and train and, and equip the congregation for the work of ministry of what's called to do. And I would say the same thing if they're even voting on other issues as well. And so, I, again, that's why I'm saying I think it's a pragmatic issue. I, I, I think that whether a church does or not, I'm not sure that's the, um, I'm, not sure that's, I'm not sure that's necessarily a biblical make or break point. I'm saying that, but what goes behind that, the thought that goes behind that is that, that there, there needs to be thought of, 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 of how does whatever you do seek to fulfill what, what the scriptures have given. So, That's good. Thanks. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. I think it, it, if you look all together, it's more of a family. Mm-hmm. So the elders would make these decisions. These are, these are the people we're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Give it to the people. They decide, are those people okay? Do mm-hmm. I know anything that maybe they don't know? Yeah. yeah. That, and then, okay, if it's okay, let them do the voting. Yeah, yeah. And again, because it's, it's, it's bringing them into the engagement process, I think there's some wisdom in that, but I don't think it's necessary. And I think that, it's, it's, again, I think it's a pragmatic issue. And so. I think there's other times that you don't want to necessarily vote. Because if it's on church discipline Mm -hmm. on someone, you don't want to tell everyone the details of what's going on in that person's life. Mm -hmm. Tell them, yes, pray for it. But the elders all know the details. Mm -hmm. And there we voted them in Mm -hmm. as our leaders. Mm -hmm. And we have to have a level of trust. True. Now, I would say that... And that's that's the one where, I, again, I don't think they're voting or not voting is is I think pragmatic, but there is an aspect of congregational involvement, right? Church discipline is not just a removal from the roles; it's not a removal from an Excel sheet. It's actually a removal from gospel fellowship in the sense of I will still fellowship with you, but I can't fellowship with you as a fellow Christian, right. and that's something we have to do as a church. It's not just the I, elders. Yeah, and so, I think yeah. That we- know some of it, yeah. but we don't need to know True. all the details. True, yes, yeah. And so the, but I, I think that I know that churches who do vote on that also do an aspect of, because they trust the elders, that they do know certain details that are not involved. So, yeah. What's interesting, because I thought you said uh, last week that, uh, you know, if someone's in a sin, it doesn't, it doesn't say, go tell to the elders. Mm-hmm. It says, go get a brother. Mm-hmm. And then, if it, he doesn't. Oh, no, go to yourself, yeah. and then go to your brother. Yeah. And then, even after you do that, it doesn't say go to mm-hmm. the elders. It says 
go to the church. Yep. Where's that forum and where's the thing? And it doesn't say that the elders are involved. Yeah. Well, I would say... Actually, we, we do that naturally because we seek people with wisdom and things like that. But yeah. I would agree, but I would also agree that if we went by Matthew, we would say that the church shouldn't have pastors because there's no mention of pastors in the church. That, that you look at, at aspects of, of, of Matthew 28, that there's no mention of actually commissioning missionaries, right? So, so we have to be careful from arguments from silence because of, of, we, we have a progressive revelation. So we, we take Matthew, but then we also take Acts and we say, okay, well, Acts gives us a, a picture of how does Matthew 28 apply. And then you look even, and you look at, was it 2nd and 3rd John? You say, oh, now look at what missions is looking like. And so you, you can see this, this development of, of, of how the church is applying Christ, you know, Christ uh, um, teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as scripture. And I would say the similar as church structure, where in, in, in Matthew, we have Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and I'd say Matthew 28 is a picture of the church. Well, that's not very much. Well, then in Acts, we get a little bit more. But then the epistles is where we really see it fleshed out, and especially 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, right, is where we see it, the church doctrine fleshed out. And so we say, well, how do we then, how, does, how do we understand 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus within the, you know, as a progressive revelation of Matthew 16? And then that's where we start to have to say, well, how do we understand where elders fit in? And, and I think that most pretty much agree that it's probably if, if you're going to tell it to the church that there's some sort of elder involvement there. And so, yeah. 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 Although, although it didn't appear like it was saying that. True. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. We'd have to do it from progressive revelation. Yeah. So that's step two. Take two. Three. I'd say three. three. I would say that step, step two, it's still not engaging. You're still not necessarily engaging. Bro- I mean, you're engaging broader, but you're not necessarily engaging the elders. Okay. You could. The two or three might be an elder. It might be a pastor. It often is, um, just practically, right? Who's someone who could speak into this person's life that, that has spiritual authority in this person's life? A lot of times it's an elder, right? But um, step two, but, but a lot of times it can also be till step three. So. But it isn't delineated. Dave brought that point out. That it doesn't say elder. No, it does not. <laughs> yeah, we have to say, how do we, by progressive revelation, understand um, how, how this fits within the church? So, yeah. When the elders take something to the church, pragmatically they vote or whatever, mm-hmm. they make their opinion known, that's a two-way thermometer. Mm-hmm. The elders can see, wow, this congregation doesn't understand the issues mm-hmm. here, and they can go back to teaching harder mm-hmm. so that, it, that people actually do understand. Or mm-hmm. they can say, okay, these people do understand and we're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a two-way street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it, it, so, and I think that's, that's healthy. That's good. Now, what I want to do is, and we could spend a lot of time here, but what I want to do is I want to start to build some understanding here. And instead of getting into just this discussion of who does what, right? This discussion of authority. Well, how do elders play in and how do the congregation play in and how do deacons play in? And, and you know, I, I grew up in this church structure. I had this church structure or there's this church polity or this church government or this church authority. And there's this system versus this system versus this system. I don't think those are bad discussions, but I think that you're starting with some, some entrenched presuppositions, right? You're starting with, here's this system and here's this system, and they're going to battle it out on which one's best. Instead, what I want to do, and, and the other danger with that is you end up proof texting. Here's my verse. This verse proves my system, right? I mean, that's what we do is that, that I'm gonna, I have this verse, and I'm going to interpret all of Scripture in light of this verse, and, and I think that there's some danger there for 
every system of theology. And so before we get to systematic theology, if you've ever, um, if you've been in my class long enough, I, I, my, uh, um, actually, I got this in biblical counseling, but it, it, hermeneutics as well. Uh, if you think about pyramid, like a pyramid of, of how we build our, our understanding of scripture, right? You want to actually almost say the whole thing is based on understanding of canon. That's why um, what uh, Mike Canham came and, and talked about so important. We need, we're, what is this, the Bible we're building on? And the very first thing we're going to look within the, the canon is, is having good hermeneutics, the sense of the, how is the way you read the Bible and the way I read the Bible, the right way to read the Bible, right? There's different ways to read the Bible. What is a proper way to study and understand the Bible? You have to build with good hermeneutics, and then you would do what's called exegesis in the sense of studying the text, right? Understanding the text, what's there in the text. And then from exegesis, you would have what's called biblical theology, what, how does this fit? It's not just a bunch of, of memory verses. This, this is a giant storyline from Genesis to Revelation is that we are making sure that we are interpreting the Bible within the scope of progressive revelation, within this scope of the storyline that God's given. And then on top of that, that's where you get your systems or your systematic theology that when you have the proper interpretation of proper verses put in the right context, then you can put the right puzzle pieces together right? And so when we start talking about who does what in the church, how do we think about people in the church? I want to think first from biblical theology. I want to take a, a, a bird's eye view and zoom out. So let's start Genesis 1.1. You never thought that you would start talking about the church in Genesis 1.1, huh? Genesis 1.1. If we're going to think about authority, you have to start in Genesis 1.1. The problem with our, our culture, right, and a misunderstanding of authority is because there's a denial of Genesis 1-1. Our understanding of authority comes from Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that have to do with authority? He is. Yeah. He is. He made it happen. He created it. He owns it. So he is the authority. He is the one who has authority. He is Lord and he is king because he is creator. And then, and then actually, if you glance ahead to Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 1, you see God is creator. And then in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, Moses retells the story of creation, right? It's like a, a movie and you get it from one vantage point and then you get the, the camera shift and you get a zooming in from a different vantage point in Genesis 2. And in Genesis two, 1, God is creator. In Genesis 2, you see God is ruler, right? He's ruling over creation. You see him as king over his creation, over the garden, right? And, 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 and int- intimately uh, engaged in creating man and woman, so both of these pictures, we see that God has absolute authority. As creator and as king and ruler, God is the one with authority. It's absolute. He doesn't have to ask Adam's permission, right? It's always, he always does what's right. It's legitimate authority. It's comprehensive. God owns it all. And, and it's authorizing in the sense of that God takes his authority and he gives it to others. That's what we're going to see here in, in Genesis 1. Look at Genesis 1, chapter 26 and 27. God takes his authority and gives it to others. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and all uh, over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. So mankind is created in God's image. It's a huge topic. We've covered that before in this class. But we can say that there are both structural and functional aspects of being in God's image. That we, uh, are bo- uh, um, we both image God as a noun and image God as a verb. Okay? That we have a structural image God as a noun. That it, we are like God in certain ways, right? In the ways in our inner man, our reason, our will, our heart, right? Uh, that our inner man is like God, is spirit like God, Right? But also, we, we also image God like a verb. It's, in fact, that's the context here. When it says, I will make God in his, I will make them, let me make them in our, in my, in our image. Um, what's the very next verses say? They're going to have dominion. What does it mean to image God? It's to have dominion. God is ruler and king. And so those in his image, he is delegating his authority to also rule as vice kings, as vice regents, as vice kings or queens. I, I love the C.S. Lewis line, right? A king and queen of Narnia, a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve is a king and queen of Narnia. Where does he get, that's right here. This is the image he pulls from right here, right? And so <laughs> we see that, that we, are, we are functionally to, to, to follow what God has set an example that the that, that, that Adam and Eve are to work and watch over God's creation for God's glory as, as like vice kings and queens, I almost said of Narnia, but of, of the world, right? So that, so, but the, they're also priest-like figures. They're king-like figures and they're priest-like figures. They're to cultivate the garden. They're to spread the worship and the glory of God. So you could say uh, Greg Beale and his excellent, excellent work on this, on biblical theology, says that Adam is like a priest-king, Adam's like a priest king. He's like a royal priest. He represents God. He images him. He represents him. Right? Represent. Represent. He images him. He represents God. How does he do that? By both being a king, by watching over the garden, right? To watch over the garden, to guard and cultivate God's work, right? That's the priestly work, to cultivate that, that work. And then he's to, to work the garden, to spread the glory of God, to rule over it. That's an outward activity. That's a kingly work. So we see that that's how God created Adam. He, God took his authority and delegated it as a priest king, or as, to his priest king, Adam. But what happened to Adam? How'd he do? What's his report card? <laughs> Crash and burden. Big F. Big F. Mom and dad would not be happy, Right? And so he sinned, he fell, he corrupted God's image. Does that mean that mankind's no longer in the image of God? No. no. Right, we see a hint in Genesis 5. Look over at Genesis 5. <clears throat> Genesis 5, verse 1. It says, when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. In the likeness of God. And then look down at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. That there's this kind of image likeness language then is saying it's, it's kind of passed on to the children. And then we see, we're going to see finally confirmed in, in Genesis 9 as well. But we see that, that this likeness is confirmed that, that even Adam's sons were meant to ha- fill that same role. 
They were meant to fulfill being priest kings. They were meant to bring God glory as, as, as those who would represent him. But they've been corrupted by sin. And so we see all of the, and, and that's shown by everyone. This, Seth lived and then he died. And then Enosh lived and he died. And Kenan lived and he died. And Mahalo lived and he died. And he died 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 and he died. All right, to show that this has been corrupted. But then turn to Genesis 9. Genesis 9. Down in verse 6, you're going to see that man's still in his image. And that's why if whoever sheds the blood of man, the blood of, shall be shed, for God made him his own image. That we're still in the image of God. That's why he's instituted government to, to bring the sword to protect life. But more than that, look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man, that language sounds familiar. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that language of 9-1? Genesis That's Genesis, right? That's Adam language. So, so what he's doing is he's, he's recommissioning Noah to, 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 take, to, to really to fulfill where Adam failed, right? Adam failed, and Noah is the new Adam. He has a new same job as priest king to rule over God's creation, in fact, to establish government, right? To where whoever sheds the blood of man, the blood of man shall be shed. That's government. That is justice. That's legal systems, right? And so, um, and, and also to, to, to multiply, to spread the glory of God and the worship of God in, in a priest-like way. So, yeah. That's government doing that, not personal eye for an eye type thing. Yes, yes. This is... This is I mean, th- what he's saying is he's, th- he's calling, and, and we see this picked up again later, even later in Romans 13, right? This is what Romans 13, Paul called the authority of the sword to come and do this. This is not a personal aspect, but this is called to, to have some sort of establishment. I mean, this is where, where does government come from? It's Genesis 9, 6. That's where we would say government comes from, where God calls Noah to initiate these standards of justice, which we would call, call governance, right? Um, but how did Noah do? Adam, Adam failed. How did Noah do? New priest king. I love, um, actually, uh, there's an excellent book on all, what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks. Uh, if you want to know and talking about this idea of how do, how, do we, how do congregations have authority and yet elders have authority and how does it work together, there's a great book, Jonathan Lehman, called Don't Fire Your Church Members. I think it's so good. He's so witty um, and it's so good. So it's, a, it's an interesting read. But here's what Lehman says. I love this because he, he goes to this biblical theology. He says this, Sadly, Noah showed up at the office drunk one day and his ch- children fared, fair be- uh, far little, or fared little better than he and Adam did. Babel proves it. So, so God moved on and God next called Abraham and installed him in Adam's job. Turn to Genesis 12. Got to move a little quicker. Okay. Look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. We see the calling of Abraham, Genesis 12. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country to the, to your, uh, and your kindred to your father's house, and your father's house to the land. I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, he, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then in Genesis 15, we won't look there, but God expounds on that covenant um, and, and says he's a covenant with him and his children. So Noah and Adam was a covenant to all people, right? To all humankind. 
Abraham is just to Abraham's descendants. This is a special covenant just to God's special people. But think about what that covenant comprises of. That God promises Abraham an offspring. He promises him a land and he promises him a blessing, right? He promises him offspring, land, and blessing. Think about this real quick. If you look at offspring, land, blessing. Think about the curses in Genesis 3. Think about the curses in Genesis 3. What what were the curses in Genesis 3 for sin? Gain childbirth. Uh, hard land. Enmity. Right? Enmity with the serpent. Right? There'd be enmity in all the days between the seed of the serpent and the seed of, seed of the woman. Right? That, that what God is doing in, in a, this Abrahamic covenant, he is saying he's re- going through Abraham, he's going to reverse the curses of the fall. So here's the curses that come from sin, and through Abraham, there's this, this, this reversing of this, right? The same categories that are, are being given as a blessing to Abraham and his descendants and his people. And so Abraham is going to be this new head of the covenant people. He is this new Adam, this new priest king. He's going to represent God. He's going to represent God's people. He's the head of that new covenant people. He's, the, he's like the king, and he's, he brings about the blessings of God by he's the one who's going to direct his family to follow the ways of God. That's a priest-like function. Well, how would God do this through just one man? How is God going to do this all through one man? Well, as we see the biblical storyline continue, that that we go from focusing on one man and and a couple children, as we move into Exodus, that one man and and a few children moves to, to who? A nation in Egypt, right? So by the time we get to Exodus, we're looking at this promise here that Abraham as his representative of a priest king is now given to a, he's head over a nation. His children are now a nation of Israel. Turn to Exodus 19. And God rescues this nation, Israel, who in chapter, Exodus 4, we won't turn there, but if you want to mark it down, Exodus 4.23, he calls Israel, my son. That's kingly language, that David was like the son of God. Now Israel is like, not David, uh, um, David was, but uh, Adam was like the son of God. Now Israel is like the son of God, right? That this Adam language. He rescues his son. He brings Israel out to Mount Sinai. And in order to fulfill his promise, how is he going to fulfill his promise to Abraham? Right? He, by, by, by giving them the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was how, by, by obeying the Mosaic Covenant, they could receive, that's how God could, would, would, would work out the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and so there's this corporate group now of, of really, we're going to see priest kings. So look at chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. This is right before, this is the beginning of Sinai, right before the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In the rest of 19, you see this anointing pictures and this purification pictures that's used for priests and it's used for kings. And you see that Israel now is a nation of priest kings. How do do the nations know who God is? They look to Israel. Israel represents God like Adam was to represent God. 
Who, who's going to cultivate ho- the holiness of God like a, a kingdom of priests? Well, it's, it's, it's Israel. Who's going to rule over God's kingdom? That kingdom, it's Israel. And so God was doing something, though he was doing something different with Israel. That instead of like Adam, priest, and king were the same, he separates them where you have different priests, right? And you have different kings in Israel. And exactly, actually, skip Deuteronomy 17. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. As we're just trying to, we'll get, on, we'll get under the wire here. So in 2 Samuel 7, we see the, the promise to David that the king of Israel was to represent God, um, to, to, to know God, to represent God, to represent the nation. Um, and we see that in, in 2 Samuel 7, that, that he said that David's sons are going to be like a son to him. So now the sonship language, not just about Adam and not just about Israel, but really about the king of Israel as well as representative of the nation. That, that the, the king was to be like this, this priest king. But then how did, what happened to Israel and, and, and the Davidic kings? How did they, they do any better than, uh, than Adam and Noah? A couple of them didn't do too good, but uh, too, well, uh, too, too bad. But most of them, in fact, Lehman in his book calls it the fall part two. And it really is, right? That, that there's this re- recapitulation of the fall like Adam before them, they failed to live up to what God had called them to do. They failed to fulfill the promises that God had made to Abraham. But the prophet said, but God's not done. God made this promise to Abraham and God's going to keep this promise to Abraham. But it's not going to be through the Mosaic covenant. It's going to be through a new covenant. Turn over to Ezekiel 36. Oh, not 368. Uh, Ezekiel... Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. 30, 30, 30, 36. Yeah. Uh, 36. So look at chapter 36. So, is, you know, the, the focus is, if we're going to get back to that new heart down later in 36, but first start in verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they shall soon come home. For behold, I am with you, and I will turn, turn, uh, I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you. The whole house of Israel, all of it, the cities will be inhabited and waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. What language is that? That's Genesis 1 language. So, he's, so Ezekiel's picking up on Genesis saying what God did with Adam that he promised he'd do again through the promise of Abraham is going to happen when God brings the people back to the land, this new exodus. They're in exodus, they're in exile, they're in Babylon. But when God does this new exodus, that he's going to bring about this new work to fulfill what God had promised to Abraham. And how is he going to do that? Look down to verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh. 
When, uh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." So what we see is it's going to be this new work. He's going to fulfill this promise to Abraham, not by just the, the law of Sinai, but to work in every, every believer is going to be a new priest king, being able to, to, to obey and follow God's law and represent God. And so the people would know who Yahweh is. And, and this is made even more clear in, 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 in Jeremiah 31. So look there real quick. Jeremiah 31 and I'll try to sum up the rest for us. Jeremiah 31. So who are these people that participate in this new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, no, Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So think about this. This is every participant Every participant in this new, God, in this new um, covenant will represent God. I will be their God. And every participant in this new covenant will, covenant will know God personally. I will put my, my law in them. No one need, is needed to teach them. They'll, they'll all know me. What does that mean, no, no teaching? Uh-oh, I'm breaking the new covenant right now. I'm teaching. That's not what it's meant, right? In the Old Testament context, what did teaching represent? A mediator to bring you to God. You don't know God. You don't know the law. And so you need a priest, you need a mediator to teach you, to bring you to God. D.A. Carson writes this. He says that this idea of teaching um, is not just about information transfer. It's not that these people will never have teachers. Rather, that in this context, it foresees a time of no mediators, because the entire covenant community will have a personal knowledge of God. The tribal nature of the people would end. Knowledge of God will no longer be mediated through specially endowed leaders. I don't teach you because I have a special knowledge that only I have. I teach you because we have the word of God and by the spirit we can all understand the word of God and we can know God. Right, that there's no longer, we don't longer need a priest we no longer need a king to bring us to God, to represent us before God, because every believer is a priest king, is a royal priest. We don't need a representative head. Every one of us is identified with God. We don't need a mediator. We, we are mediators with God. We don't need a new king. We have the law of God on our hearts so that we can obey God. And then the New Testament picks up on the storyline. If you go to Matthew 1, which we won't turn there, we see that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham that Jesus fulfills this role of the promise to Abraham. He fulfills this new covenant. He is the king of kings. And how does he rule? By giving his life as a ransom for many. He's also the great high priest. He's the, he's the perfect priest king. He is everything Adam was meant to be, Jesus is. 
And that's why we see that, that Paul calls him the new Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. That, that, that everything that Adam was designed to be, Jesus becomes. And after his resurrection, uh, Colossians 1 says he becomes the firstborn among many brethren or firstborn of a new creation kingdom. So he has now a kingdom of people like him, the firstborn of a, a, a nation, a kingdom, a church of priest kings. So in Acts chapter two, when the spirit comes down, right? We see that, that the last days have finally come, the prophesied in the prophets like Joel, but also Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the new covenant's here. And who's part of this new covenant work? Men and women and children and, 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 and old and, and servants and, and male and female servants, everyone received the spirit. That's the picture of Acts, right? If you're a believer, you've received the spirit. You are a member of this new covenant community. So every Holy Spirit-inspired Christian fulfills this office that, in Christ of that Adam was meant to be as a priest-king. We identify with, Christ, with, with God. We witness and, as a king to expand the work of God and cultivate God's kingdom. And we consecrate the holiness of God within his church as priests. And so, so we see that this is, this is how it's brought through into where Peter, who wrote, you know, is speaking there in Acts, finally in 1 Peter 2.9, calls us a royal priesthood right? You are a royal priesthood. He uses that very same language there of the church in 1 Peter 2.9. So what's the implications here? Let me wrap it up. The fact that every believer is a priest king means that although God specifically calls some to positions of leadership in the church, there is a ontological equality of the saints. Oh my goodness, that's a big word. What does that mean? That means there's no difference spiritually between you and me. I may be an elder, I may be a pastor, but before Christ, we are equal. That there's a, because what, what matters is that we are in Christ. There's not a division between clay, uh, clergy and laity. Right? In the Reformation, that is what the, the Reformers fought against. There's not this spiritual, t- you know, if you're, you can be a clergy, you get to be the spiritual t- tier, and if you're not a clergy, then you're just down here and hope you make it. <clears throat> and you just have to rely on these, these clergy mediators. No, we are all in relationship with the God of the universe through Christ. We are all in Christ. God has gifted giftnesses for, to his church, which we see that's how leadership comes in for the, for the building up of the body, but there's not that division there. Um, also, every member of every congregation has the responsibility and the authority to represent Christ, to witness and expand Christ's kingdom as a king, and to watch over the holiness of, a, of the church as a good priest. In other words... The authority for witness and ministry is to every member. The authority for the holiness of the church is for every member. And and so there's other questions we're going to consider in the coming weeks, and that's where the video about elders and deacons will come in, and we're going to start. How do we put these pieces together, which we started a little bit today, of how, okay, if that's the authority that's given to the congregation, there is an authority, how do they exercise that? What are the ways the New Testament displays them living out this way as a, a royal priest? How does that connect with these God-given offices of leadership like elder and deacon? And those are good questions, but I want to keep it focused that those are secondary questions. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We want to start with the fact that every member of the church has a responsibility and authority given when accepted into membership, like we're accepting people into membership today. An authority to minister both out of the church and in the church as a royal priest who represents God. And so the application of this week is you are God's minister, both out of the church and in the church. Each and every one of us are. That's what the Holy Spirit has empowered us to do.
But the next question will be, how do we live out that responsibility? What's the job description of a priest king? How do we see that play in the New Testament and that relationship with other leadership? That's where we're going. We're going to get there. But I want to take some time and build that foundation first. So I'm sorry. I got no time for questions. I really, I I have to get for worship and we'll pick it up. And um, I want to, but I, I know better. So let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for today. Uh, I just thank you for your scripture. I thank you for this beautiful, beautiful story of, of your scripture and of your redemptive work and, and the fact that we can look back over, over the generations of your faithfulness that's pointed towards what we get to experience in the new covenant. How glorious you are, O oh God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.